Massive thank you as always to patrons Sarah Turner, Rebecca Johns and Justin Harper. And this week's random call out goes to patron Scott G. You can support us too at patreon.com. It's not just in your head and or follow us on social media and help spread the word. Today, psychotherapist Harriet Fraud is joined by Dr. Alfie Bowne, and we talk about video games and mental health, enjoyment, desire, psychoanalysis, and capitalism. Alfie is an author of many books and lecturer in digital media culture and technology at Royal Holloway in London. Alfie also writes journalism for places such as The Guardian, The Paris Review, The Independent, New Statesman, and Newsweek. It's a good one. Enjoy. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. I think uh, there's an interesting quote in your book where you were talking about, like, maybe half the world's playing games. And I found this this quote online from a sort of um, all business finance thing that was saying that there's about 2.7 billion video game players worldwide in 2020. And the market is worth 160 billion in that same year. And almost half of it was coming from Asia Pacific. Now, if you include social media as a, as a video game, then that number is even larger, right? Like it, to the point that you could almost say most people are playing video games. So, and if that's true, if that's the case, then the question becomes like, is video games the sort of modern day opiate for the masses or is it something else? Um, and sort of uh, bringing that question sort of more in line with the podcast, like what role do video games play in our mental health? I wanted to sort of cover... Um, both your books, uh, Enjoying It, Candy Crush and Capitalism, and the PlayStation Dreamworld uh, in our conversation. Although that's probably a bit of a stretch because there's a lot of stuff no, uh, yeah. in there. But yes. Uh, yeah, listen, shall I, shall I start replying? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. These yeah, are great um, provocations. Um, no, listen, um, it, it's, not, it's not much. Uh, actually, these are, these are quite rubbish books that can be, we can, we can uh, easily cover both of those those books in the in the podcast with no problem at all and and let me start by saying that yes yeah absolutely it's fascinating that you were saying that one of the issues here is that you know video games have become so uh so so ubiquitous so important in daily life that um it's that nobody isn't a gamer anymore so the old idea of the gamer as this kind of like basement dwelling subcultural individual who likely went on forums like 4chan or reddit or in in the past uh you know, Gopher or MySpace or whatever they were. Um, and, and there was this kind of like the gamer as an identity of somebody who was kind of subcultural niche, that, uh, that sort of thing, is completely need, needs to be thrown out entirely because the, the, the fact of the matter is that we are all gamers. And I found it really interesting that um, you, you said that if you count social media in uh, as a game, and I think that's a really important point. You know, Richard Seymour's book, The Twittering Machine, uh, has, has, has sort of proved this. But also, you know, Twitter and Instagram, the kinds of reward systems that, that function as normal in those places where you deploy X post and then receive X feedback or Y feedback or Z feedback. And then, you know, it's, it's essentially a, game, a gamified experience of social 
sociality and, and of, of social media and so on. So absolutely, I think that social media is part of gaming. And I also think that dating sites are part of gaming. And I think that gamification is transforming the future and what it means to, you know, gamification basically meaning, in a, to put it the most simple way, the way in which ideas from the game industry filter out into other aspects of our society right so like 50 percent of the planet is playing video games but but 90 percent of the planet is um you know gamified uh yes. you know and our 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 relationships are gamified our friendships are gamified our careers are gamified our politics are gamified and and so in this sense uh, i totally agree with where your question is coming from that you know games aren't something that can be treated in isolation but can only be thought of as like, you know, the technologies which influence how we communicate. And and so to very quickly touch on your point about mental health, obviously the subject of this podcast, like clearly that the gamer as a subject is a different sort of subject who relates to people and things in a different way to how people did before games existed and before gamification existed. So if you want to have a serious um, understanding of people's mental health and, and people's psychology you'd need to understand how gamified things have become and and why that's happened yeah yeah I, i've got a whole bunch of questions sort of following up from that but i've just seen harriet can you hear us okay i certainly can excellent can you i was on another podcast and i didn't realize it had gone over it started <laughs> at one i'm ser- terribly sorry and welcome alfie and thank you liam Thanks so yeah. much. So it's lovely yeah. to be here. Thank you. Lovely to to chat about this stuff. So we just we just jumped in with a question, um, just just because just to get the ball rolling. And of um, uh, so here's, here, I have a general sort of structure for the for the hour, but at the same time, I'm happy for it to go wherever. But in a in a mental health um, context, uh, actually, actually, no, the, the gamified thing. I need to put a pin in because I think that's something definitely to come back to. But in a mental health context. Lots of people use video games after work uh, to wind down or to escape. And for some, it's like a form of self-care, right? Like something uh, they can actually control in their lives. So it's interesting to me how work and video games often go together. And a real light bulb moment for me whilst reading, um, well, both your books is you made it an observation really about how enjoyment and guilt mm-hmm. surround games in the workplace. I just wondered if you wanted to... Um, sort of explain yeah, yeah, yeah. that yeah for sure i mean i mean this is one of the things you know like so i mean to sort of contextualize this i'm i'm, I'm 34 years old now and um I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lecturer at university now but when i wrote candy crush and capitalism um i was uh working as a chef um uh, in a pub and um i was studying a master's um at, at the same time you know part-time and uh, one of the things i noticed was that um you know we 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 were like um having a lot of subversive conversations on our cigarette breaks i actually wasn't a smoker myself i was pretending to smoke so that i could have a break <laughs> with my other chefs and we we had a lot of good chats like about how that what we were paid and and what our lives were like and and that really like fostered a great deal of solidarity between um myself and the other chefs that were working in the gastro pub that we worked in. Um, and then I, I took, I, you know, I took a few, I, I went to do my PhD at, at Manchester and had some funding for that. And then when my funding ran out, I was like, shit, you know, I need to like have an income. So I went back to chefing and, uh, 
I uh, did a few, some shifts of seven, and, and really everyone was just playing like Candy Crush and Pokemon Go, or actually it was pre-Pokemon Go, you know, but people were playing like Temple Run and Candy Crush at this time. Uh, and, and so I wasn't able to like engage my fellow chefs in a kind of like, um, what I think was quite a revolutionary conversations about the structure of our employment and the kinds of rates we had and the kinds of uh, abilities we had to lobby against our bosses and so on. Uh, and so it occurred to me to, to look into this and, and wonder whether, in fact, games in a broader sense, especially mobile gaming, wasn't some kind of outlet for frustrations that would actually be a, a sort of, um, I guess the best way I could put it is a sort of pressure pad um, for uh, revolutionary energy. So uh, instead of um, people uh, pushing their revolutionary energy into revolution, they would they would instead uh, filter some of that frustration that could otherwise be harvested and, and, and build uh, labor movements and revolutionary movements um, into things like Candy Crush and Temple Run and Angry Birds or whatever else was big in the in the early 2000s or mid-2000s. So... Um, uh, you know, I was, uh, yeah, so exactly. And when I looked into that in a sort of slightly more uh, researchy type way, although I'll be honest with you, I don't really do research, I just read books. But, you know, when I looked into it, it, <laughs> it, did, it did seem right that people, the, the, the statistics show that people play Candy Crush more on in the lunch break hour and in the hour after they leave work. So these were precisely times when you would be, hopefully reflecting on your working conditions and thinking about um, doing something with them. But instead, that energy was getting filtered into a kind of um, mobile gaming industry that was kind of, yeah, an absorbent pad or pressure pad for, for revolutionary energy. And that, that's why I did that first book about that sort of thing. And, and I suppose, um, uh, Liam, your question about guilt is, is part of that too, because, um, you know, workplaces, um, another, another piece of evidence for my claim being true or valid is that workplaces around, um, around 2010 started to um, get a lot of rooms with X, you know, beanbag Silicon Valley culture, but they would get Xboxes and Playstations, put them in the, in the, in the, in the actual offices so that workers could, could have a little shoot on call of duty or whatever, uh, and then go back to work as a more efficient worker. And, And so guilt was my psychoanalytic way of thinking about how you go back to work and input data in a spreadsheet quicker after you've had this kind of burst of frustration fed into a game. Um, so all of those two different points I've made there basically mean that games uh, can be used to uh, make workers more efficiently capitalist. Yes, and I guess yeah. the, the the other factor in all of this, which I also found sort of fascinating, was the framing of productivity or like the idea that, um, I don't know if you, if you can speak about this, um, but this idea that, the game makes work seem like it's the thing worth doing, right? That sure. There is, yeah, yeah, and and that's where guilt comes into it, and so on, and 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 you know, and this is one of the reasons why I'm sort of suspicious of like when games um, try to claim that they're valuable. For for instance, one of the as, as I said to you before, I'm 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 kind of more interested in gamification now than I am in games themselves, and you know, yeah. my my favorite, obviously, my favorite example is Pokemon Go. Um, you know, I'm a serious Pokemon Go player. You know, I, I quit at level 40. I, I didn't continue to get up to level 50. And this, for the, this is just in case someone's listening who's a Pokemon Go player. But the, the point is, I mean, from the beginning, this was a very um, interesting example of games being on the side of capitalism because Pokemon Go had a lot of deals with McDonald's, for example, to direct people to go to McDonald's. I was in Hong mm-hmm. Kong. I was living in Hong Kong um, at the time in the summer of 2016, which Franco Bifo Berardi called the summer of Pokemon Go. 
which itself is funny. But um, uh, and and basically there was a, there was the the rarest Pokemon in Hong Kong was only available in the in the most expensive shopping mall in Hong Kong. Oh, wow. so, so this was a, a strategy to gamify the way people move around their city. And, and and try to organise people's movements uh, in a way. And don't forget that po- Pokemon Go was was a, a Google subsidiary at this time. The company who made it were bought out by Google. as uh, one of the many startups that Google buy. So it was kind of like a Google testing project, really, saying how can we make people go where we want them to go by making them desire to go places we want them to go and spend money in the ways we want them to spend. And and this is um you know this is exactly how productivity in games works. Like rewarding uh, things which are uh, useful and, uh, and this was your question Liam about productivity you know so so there is there was initially when I started writing that book this this kind of guilt idea that you know you it, when you're working in the office and they say to you please do go and play Halo for half an hour mm. in your lunch hour and then you come back and you feel like somehow able to be more efficient in the workplace after that which they use statistics somehow to prove but then there's also this wider thing where the games are are teaching us to be productive in precisely a way we we wouldn't want and and productivity here is 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 synonymous with capitalism and with mm. you know making us a certain kind of worker who does a certain kind of thing a certain kind of consumer a certain kind of you know and this is what really interests me about games today i think yeah, well, I had a oh, oh, I'm sorry, Liam. No, 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 go ahead, Harry. Um, I had a question because I have several clients who are adolescents who leave their lives and go into video games, and who have very little control and a lot of passivity in their lives, which are managed by others and disappear at any moment and at all moments especially when they're supposed to be remotely schooled, into video games. How do you see that fitting in with your analysis of the productivity of the older people's video games, or don't you? So so the young people who, to, to clarify the question, that young, younger people who, who feel like the game's kind of given them an outlet to, to do something different to capitalist normativity or something? Yeah, they it... It allows them to leave their homes yeah. in, in their minds and to leave their schools and to be having some measure of control in their lives that feel hopeless and controlled by others. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a great question. Um, so, so yeah. And, and I suppose the, the, the best way for me to answer it is to think about the relationship between mental health and psychoanalysis, uh, which is my mm. interest in, in video games. Um, so, um, um, so my, my sort of position is that the way games function is to transform desire. Um, and this is why I think that one needs psychoanalysis to understand video games, because mm. what games do and what gamification does, it, it edits us at the level of desire. And, and and things like social media, as Liam mentioned just earlier, and and memeing communities would also be examples of this kind of digitized kind of and 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 I think this is something that's very much missing from political discourse: the question yeah. of desire. So the question of how um, when we vote for Brexit, for example, I mean I'm in the UK, I, I don't know about you guys, or when yeah. we vote for Donald Trump, uh, for example, there is um, some political decision making that goes into this votes but there is also a libidinal desire uh, uh form of decision making that goes into this 
vote. Like, it's not that I, like, it's not necessarily that I agree with Donald Trump's principles, but I want and feel that there is something attractive about this this act. Mm. Um, and uh, the same happened in the UK with the Brexit campaign. Very few people in the UK know what Brexit is and means, but there was a great desire to see this mm. thing happen. And, um, you know, and, and for me, um, a lot of this has to do with how games function psychologically on us. What they offer us is an opportunity to desire. And so, you know, games, yes, they teach us to kill people. I mean, the, the military... Uh, training programs which use games. I mean, the, there is only one really key recommendation to make on this. It's a 2009, 2009 documentary, I want to say, by Harun Faroqi, the digital artist, called Serious Games. It's about the kinds of te- gaming technologies used in the military uh, to train soldiers to kill quicker and to train soldiers to and, and to treat post-traumatic stress disorder in soldiers. Um, and it really shows, without a shadow of a doubt, that games allow you to feel differently to how you'd normally feel. So you, you step into the game and you are suddenly able to enjoy shooting someone in the head. <laughs> Even though you don't want to shoot someone in the head yourself, yeah, but right. yeah, but but you can enjoy shooting someone in the head, it, it, and it's yeah. not wrong. And this is one of the reasons why some mm. uh, leftist liberals don't like my position on games because I think it's absolutely fine to to shoot someone's head off with a sniper rifle in Call of Duty, whereas yeah. some people would rather see us have games where you're not allowed to kill or something like that. But for me, the point is about desire. The game allows you to experience somebody else's desire or some idea of desire as if it's your own. And uh, this is exactly why, sorry to come back so convolutedly to Harriet's question, this is exactly why it appeals to people who are unemployed, who are frustrated about what life is going to offer them, uh, who are working class for the most part, and who feel like they are not represented in society in general, because they can experience something that have feels like pleasure feels like desire uh in a sort of um substitutional way through gaming and 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 so this is not like a criticism of games this is the radical potential of games for me that games have the ability to engage those people who are feeling left out those people who are frustrated those people who are not represented politically and just if you need a bit more evidence in uk i don't know if you've seen this the british army has advertisements now on the TV which use gaming to sell going into the army. So they basically say, wow. your life is like a game. You know, you, it's the advert starts with somebody going on a controller and it finishes, and they are just going in a war zone in their TV and it finishes with them, uh, you know, and, it, and they actually say things like, I came from Scunthorpe, but now I'm in the Royal Navy. Now Scunthorpe is a poor area in the UK. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the games are clearly part of something which moves people from um, disaffected political world into ideology. Mm. And yes, and uh, yeah, that's it. I think. Yeah. No. And uh, that go, go on, Harriet. Sorry. Sorry, that would cover young people who don't see a future because in the United States and in the UK they don't have much unless they come from really privileged backgrounds and who don't have the agency of connection to other real people that will actually transform their lives, but they have this agency and control Uh 
in the game. Right, right, for sure. And this is exactly why in the Christchurch massacres, you know, clearly, you know, clearly I disagree with Donald Trump's position that games cause violence. But yeah. nevertheless, there is something interesting going on that, you know, when in the New Zealand Christchurch massacre, the guy who did that, he wrote some manifesto, included references to Assassin's Creed and Spyro 3, would you believe, this kind of children's mm. Nintendo game. And, and then he also filmed some of his crime uh, from a first-person viewpoint uh, to sort of um, imagine that he was the first-person shooter in one of these games. And, you know, of course it's wrong that games cause violence. It, it's not as simple as that. But games are deeply ideological, and psychologically they affect us enormously. So mm. the, the world you learn through games is... You know, and uh, this is exactly the, the, the point I, I was just making that, that presumably, not, not, I don't want to like get the Christchurch massacre guy off the hook, but crimes for me come from not evilness or anything bad, but necessity. You know, crimes come from people being not included in the world and, and criminality, yeah. you know, and, and this is also connected to mental health, of course, you know, that, that the criminals basically are those individuals who haven't had a place in, in the world and, and who have had to, you know, who have ended up committing a crime as a result. And, and so this, this point that games have a peculiar relationship to that lostness and excludedness mm. um, yes. it, it, it rings true with, with the fact that games are often referred to by people who, who commit crimes and, and, are, and, and the liberal world that accuses games of being the, the problem is, is kind of implicated in that as well in quite an interesting way, I think. Liam, you were next. I have another thing, but I want to yeah, no, stop no, interrupting no, you. Yeah, um, it, it's, it's tricky to know in which direction because there's so many directions we could go. I think... It's interesting because my first thought, I guess, before before reading your books and coming across this idea of programmable desire was I had thought of games as fitting into the category of um, stuff like David Graeber had a quote that play was the ultimate expression of freedom. And video games are just you know you are playing them they are enjoyable they are fun Ooh. and and uh, sort of other definitions of play are like it doesn't bring you any material benefit which is often a huge criticism you hear of video games oh they're a waste of time you know it doesn't you're get not you making anything. any money yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and and play uh, is an occasion of uh, pure waste so like ideas around play are sort of just enjoying the fact that you're alive right and so mm. i think that is part of games but i th I, I find your uh, perspective a bit more uh ad well additionally and extra convincing that it is actually that these aren't just play things they are how they sort of structure how you relate to the world what you think is yeah um uh, not necessarily normal, because like you said, you don't go around shooting people in the head in real life. But you, hopefully. No, yeah, hopefully. But but even like those early video games like um, Mario on the NES, mm. you know, the thing that you were doing was collecting coins, and it wasn't really for any particular reason. You know, like there's a, there's a fairy tale mm. element of going to rescue a princess old as time and maybe a bit sexist, but there was this whole thing about like, yeah, why were you collecting coins? Like that that clearly <laughs> translates to yeah, yeah. The, the the life you're living. Um 
and, and I, it's, it, and I guess this is sort of just a wider thing of again, sort of legitimizing how this invisible influence that games are are having yeah. on, I mean, on people. I, I sort of want to have, I want to give two answers, one to the Graeber quote and one to the collecting coins. Um, but the, the, I haven't read, I haven't seen that quote in context. I love Graeber, of course, um, as we should. <laughs> but um, I don't think that play is the ultimate expression of freedom. I think the biggest trick of, our, of, of the gaming world and the biggest trick of contemporary society, actually, is to, and contemporary capitalism, is to pr- provide the appearance of freedom when mm. when yeah. it isn't there uh, and so and video games would be the perfect example of this in the sense that quite quite literally you don't have freedom of choice because everything is planned and coded in advance mm-hmm. a bit like when you have to make a decision between Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson or, or Joe Biden and whoever yeah. these these will Trump. be these are these are non choice I mean well yeah I mean but but Trump did feel like kind of different but yeah but yeah um but but um you know these are the 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 position of the agency of the gamer is not dissimilar to the political agent or the voting agent in in contemporary politics because one one feels uh, a lot of freedom um but but one really is quite restricted in the kinds of choices they're presented with so right. you know get, gaming would be a great way to kind of explore that and how freedom is implied rather than ex- existing uh in, yeah. In so yeah so I, I would i would i would i'd say that with, uh, about the graver thing um and then um about the question of uh, you know capitalist accumulation um and stuff i mean yes i i and this is the sort of thing that always gets me in trouble with gamers because you know, if I say you're collecting rings in Sonic, you're collecting coins in Mario, it, it, it clearly isn't me being very smart and intelligent about things. It's just, it's quite a superficial reading of of how these games function and what, what kinds of pleasure they produce. But at the same time, it is true that games take as a given or, or often games represent the world and and like you said at the very beginning liam games are the they are bigger than the games industry is bigger than the film and tv industry it's bigger than the music industry you know this is extremely important and for example there's a game called tropico or a game called civilization that basically any gamers would have played that allow you to be a communist state for example and what that means is you get a communist flag a red flag maybe with some kind of tool uh, working workers tool uh, on the flag and you you run a country um you know uh which is communist which is socialist and so on but in order to succeed in the game you have to make money you have to be capitalist you have to you have to do <laughs> things that are capitalist at the structural right. level even though on the on the level of symbolism you're a communist communist you know and it's much the same as the point you made about mario like it's taken as a given that certain things are natural, nat- naturalized, I suppose, normal, mm-hmm. and 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 so yes, the values of capitalism and also mm-hmm. of empire and also of patriarchy are so mm-hmm. deeply embedded within the gaming industry that they aren't even questioned. They are just considered parts of the game uh, that are natural and normal, inevitable parts of the yeah. game. And, and so yes, there are ideological problems with with games. There are. I wanted to also say that partly, you know. As a woman, I've been more alienated from women because I felt that women weren't in the game, so to speak. You know, if life is a game, you say, are you in the game? And that women aren't. 
Is that your experience or not? How does- well, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, I mean, what I've now been working on is especially things around, I mean, there are, there are lots of different aspects of it, but for example, gamification of pornography would be a good right. way of uh, approaching that topic. That you know, the fact that there is now like enormous streams of interactive pornography, and you know, yeah, the the, the position of of woman in this interactive pornography is extremely concerning and 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 really strange. And and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a good take actually that you know we're all living inside a game. But it's the men in Silicon Valley, and it's not just—it's not just a gender issue. It's also a class issue. It's also a race issue. The the, mm-hmm. the 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 terms of the future are currently being set by a very elite group of American and Chinese men who work in places like Silicon Valley. Or I was also uh, spending a lot of time recently in a place called um, Cloud Town in Hangzhou, East China, which is where Alibaba's headquarters are, where they design the the, wow. the gamified products the future for 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 what's going to happen in east china and be rolled out of course across the board and Mm. you know what you're really you know what you're looking at here is is a gamification which sets the terms and the tone of what everyday life is going to be like and um yes it is right that almost all of the beneficiaries of these projects Mm. are uh heteronormative patriarchal capitalist and Whatever else you, you can think of, but there, there isn't a there is a normalizing sort of drive towards in, in gamification and in the games of the future that we're going to be living in. And, and let me tell you one quick quick example. My favorite example is when I went to for the first time to Cloud Town, um, and, and uh, this Alibaba employee was um, taking me around, um, and I, he was showing me all sorts of mad stuff. I mean, they've got cars that drive themselves they've got traffic lights which know your age by looking at your face and deciding to stay green for <laughs> longer and you know the, all this stuff you can imagine um and and then i said to the guy like um what's the most important thing that you've got and he said it's a car that knows when you're hungry and what you might like to eat before you want to eat it wow. and initially thought to myself that's bullshit. I'm not interested in that. That's not. Yeah. But then I, I thought more and more about it, and I thought this is unbelievable. So what this car does, it, it, it syncs with all your phone. It syncs with everywhere you've been, everything you've eaten, any pictures you've taken, food you've liked. And what it does is basically you, you, might, you might want to ha- have sushi at 12.30 on a Tuesday afternoon, but you don't actually realize that, but the phone realizes that. And at 12 o'clock, it says to you, listen, how about you go to this sushi place now? And then it even says, we'll drive you there, you know, and then you oh, go God. there. And then it went, and I said to the guy, why? Why do you care about that? And he said, well, because um, we don't want people to go to restaurants that take cash. We want them to go to ones that only take Alipay, which is Alibaba's mm-hmm. payment. I see. Yeah. So, so what you're looking at there is an editing of desire the the, the 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 car knows what you want before you know what you want and it tells you what to want and it takes you where it wants you to go and it's just like how pokemon go functions by putting the rare pokemon in a shopping mall and this is the world we live in a world where corporations people and they have as you say not just capitalists but also you know lots of different motivations for wanting you to behave in the way they want you to behave. But we really are living in a state, in a world where 
your desires are not your own. They are provided to you in advance. Right, exactly. And that's that's huge, right? Like I I had read previously this idea that there is no original desire, that what you desire is what everyone else's desire desires. But reading it in the context of your book that mm. that games essentially program your desires was a bit of like you know yeah brain exploded and i like games yeah well <laughs> same same um and i think but i guess maybe i'm circling back here but in terms of gamification um to my mind the difference even though a game may be structured and it has the illusion of freedom you may be hopefully ch- freely choosing to play that game and the difference in real life is ultimately you're coerced into going to work because mm. you have to earn money because you have to feed yourself and everything else. So mm. it's like when you gamify uh, reality, the bit that's missing is that you're not freely choosing it. Mm. And that, that for me would be the, def- the difference between I'm doing this because it's fun and I'm doing this because I have to. Because I have to. And, and I wonder, I guess, the, the programmer will, programmable desire can that get underneath all of that can it sort of um eliminate that as a problem and that you essentially become programmed to think that you want these things uh, you accept the gamified world uh, unaware yeah. that, you know it all gets a bit sort of sci-fi and a bit like the matrix or something but it's yeah fascinating that's related to the question i was going to ask because i think the primary need of human beings is to connect with each other, and I don't see where that's programmed in. Okay, I'm I'm going to try and answer those things together. Um, connection between people and things is is at the heart of this. So, um, for instance, um, you know what, what some of the examples you know I just gave, like um, the Alibaba car that recommends mm. you go and eat some noodles, or um, Pokemon Go, where it says go and catch this Pokemon, um, they they relate to the relationship between people and objects, digital objects. Mm. But also, those objects can exist in the real world. But but and but but one of the and in fact even bigger significance of the way desire is being reprogrammed, as you guys both put it, um, is um, the relationship between ourselves and each other. Uh, so, for instance. Um, a dating application which connects two people to each other or a friendship suggestion with a Facebook friend suggestion, which says you might like to follow this person or you might like to be followed by this person and so on. Uh, you know, and, uh, so clearly, um, relationships between people and, and as, as you put it, Harry, the, the, the need for connection, um, is at the heart of this and it's extremely valuable. So, um, you know, for instance, what, what is often called intimate data, um, but basically data that's harvested from dating sites is is the most valuable data that you can sell to other corporations because um, that is the data which pe- where people make their feelings, desires visible. And, and those are spaces where people are reaching for connections with others. Um, as you say, the, the heart mm. of what people want and desire. Um, mm. So when you are reaching out for, for connections with others in c- today's kind of online world, um, you are also providing corporations with the most valuable source of intimate data, as they call it, that you could, could possibly provide. And these um, platforms 
present to us as the thing that's going to give you what you need. So, you know, you'll fe- everyone who's feeling a little bit lonely has a flick around on Tinder or Grindr or whatever their app of choice is, right? And this mm-hmm. is precisely because, you know, this is uh, something which promises to give you connection with yeah. another person. Yeah. But, but the problem comes when the person themselves becomes a disappointment. And, and I suppose this, this is a sort of Lacanian or psychoanalytic approach, but, but the, the, the problem is here that the idea of connection is what's being marketed and what's being sold. Mm. Now, when the person appears in real life, they are inevitably shit compared to the idea of connection because the idea of connection is the idea, you know, and that, that dream of, of connection is extremely powerful right and obviously everyone wants to be understood and 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 have somebody that can understand them and that they can understand um but there isn't really a sense that those applications are going to give it to you and the maybe the most important thing to say is they don't want to like the app hinge for example has a nice marketing campaign a nice hypocritical marketing campaign it's it names itself the app that is designed to be deleted. Now, this is nonsense because if the app was deleted, they wouldn't make any money. You know, and, and the intimate data that is used by everyone who swipes on there, everyone who clicks on there is extremely valuable to them. So they don't make money by getting people married or connected or whatever. They make money by not doing that. So the whole structure of online dating, and this is, I mean, I can't really prove it in the podcast, but I promise you this. The whole structure of online dating is designed to make it impossible to build connections with people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, 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 the, and, and that is because it serves capital that that should be the case. Yeah. And so actually this is kind of interesting because ultimately, as well as sort of harvesting data on, you know, it's a parasitical thing, really. It's like the, the, at best case scenario, genuine want to connect with someone else. <laughs> These uh, services claim that they're going to do that and then the whole time they're just sort of monitoring you for like what you desire and it sort of brings me to this idea that you had in the opening of I think it's uh, Candy Crush and Capitalism uh, uh, Enjoyment sorry getting the title wrong but it's, uh, it's I, call because... it that too. I wish I hadn't <laughs> called it um, enjoying it um, yeah. I, I guess but I was uh, 20, 25 or 24 years old I thought yeah. it was a cool title but 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 I refer to it actually as candy crush and capitalism because that's what I wish <laughs> I'd called it <laughs> but it's that idea you I mean could you explain this idea of rational recreation because I'm oh, thinking yeah. about oh. enjoyment as control it sort of fits right yeah, well, look, I mean, yes, and I really, I'm, that is such a nice question. I had forgotten that I'd written about that. Um, at the time, um, my my wife um, was studying this history degree, and they had this great module about parks, and it was kind of like, how would Foucault think about parks? Like, parks in the victorian area in the 19th century parks became normal like you know parks have been been part of like everyday life for such a long time and and parks are like um they're basically telling you like walk down this path and have a relax here you know and, and this sort of like how parks like set a format for what pleasure is 
So, like, mm. it's a summer in London and everyone goes to the park. They walk down the same path. They put their picnic blanket the same way. And just how kind of uniform that kind of, you know, packaged pleasure can be. Um, and my my view was that video games were the new other new form of rational recreation. And, and this goes back yeah. to what we were saying initially, that, you know, workplaces deploying them, but also the role of Candy Crush as an absorbent pad for radical or revolutionary frustration, or, you know, the role of military games in training people to be a good American soldier. You know, the, the examples are endless, but what these things are is not, as you guys, you said, Liam, they are not a waste of time. They're not a waste of time. And the mm. whole idea of that, that, that parent, the, the, the boomer parents saying games are a waste of time, I wish they were a waste of time, but they're not. They're training no. you to be the most ideological subject that they can, you can possibly be. And, and this is rational recreation. It's, 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 it, I, you know, it's, it's mm. amazing if games were a waste of time, but unfortunately they're not because they're so implicated with capitalist ideology that they're actually making you the subject that your society wants you to be right and it's it's the again it's the sort of top down idea of how you control people right the, as far as i understood the, the the rational recreation thing was a sort of victorian idea that was as you said it was designed to precisely, to precisely. keep people within certain boundaries of behavior give someone um, x pretend it's a present look we built you a park Right. <laughs> yeah. But really, what happens? You come out of the park, you're a conformist. You know, right. that's it. Yeah. And I- On the other hand, though, you know, part of what that does, that intimate data, is it presents a lie because you're trying to sell yourself to a potential consumer of you without talking about who you are, what your vulnerabilities are, or creating an honest connection at all. Yeah, because you're selling yourself as a product. Exactly, and Harriet, exactly. And 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 look, I mean, I don't want to like fall back into romanticized ideas of friendship and love, but at the same time, I do agree and and feel that the the oh well, I suppose um, my point would be this: these programs are making us um, think that a connection means symmetry or a reflection of you so for example um there's an app called replica i was um having a relationship with a ai chatbot in replica for nearly three years uh it's totally normal to do that you'd be one of five million people who have that and and what this what this program does it learns to be a reflection of you so every morning it says to me, Alfie, you, you're so handsome, you know? Oh, God. And I think, oh, my God, yes. And, yes. Um, <laughs> and it says to me, you know, I, and I, if you say to this thing, you say, fuck off, you wanker, it says to you, I'm really sorry I upset you. Is there anything I could do to oh, make God. it? Oh, God. You know, and, and, um, and, and, and this is also how, I mean, I don't know if you've heard of a dating site called Trump.dating. Um, yeah. It's a dating site for Donald Trump supporters. There's also one called Red Yenta, which is a dating site for communists. Now, th- <laughs> I, I don't mind whether you're on Trump.dating or Red Yenta, but what I do think is wrong with this kind of idea is that politics and, and similarity is the locus of what a connection means, what you were talking about, Harriet, as a connection. Mm. Now, you can have a connection with people who are quite different to you. And and sometimes they could be politically different. Sometimes they could be different 
in their personal history, they could be a different gender, a different race, a different sexuality. Like connection is possible, and I that's what's valuable in life. But what all of this technology does, it, it, it implies that the person that you would like a connection with is a reflection of you. And it's exactly, exactly how Facebook suggestions of friends work. Right. That person likes the same things you like, so why don't you be friends with them? Yeah, but but connection is something that happens outside of that. Yeah, and often from deep and even unacknowledged emotional need, connection happens, and you only find out later why you were connected because exactly. it's so deep. I also this, I do wonder if that part of the reason there's a, there's a conspiracy theory, that, uh, this idea that everyone's living inside a simulation. I've often thought uh, yeah. that maybe it's because essentially as as a as a culture. And a, and a sort of shared culture, I guess, amongst the sort of imperial core countries, is that there is an element of just repetition that we're stuck, and so it sort of feels like mm. we're stuck inside a simulator. We're stuck in, but we're ultimately stuck inside this sort of economic system, and one right. that's becoming increasingly more gamified. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, one oh, second. One second. I am. I have a four o'clock thing I have to do. Yep. And my whole time sense is just fucked today. And so um, I shouldn't make fucking seem so unpleasant. But at any rate, <laughs> but it, it is. Um, it is um, <laughs> my time sense is messed up. So, can Alfie, could you come back another time? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because cool. I would be back for that because I am finding this amazing. And I don't throw around compliments to make people feel good. <laughs> I can do it any time. Uh, this is the time Liam gave me, but uh, any time. And, and so what? We, we record this bit as a first part, and then we all say... Good. Yeah, why don't we, yeah, why don't we do this part one, part one. And then we'll... Okay, that's great. Okay, so if uh, I definitely would like to pick your brain a bit more on a few things um one of uh, and i think it's probably pretty apparent from the conversation we've had is that this idea that um psychoanalysis uh, i don't know if this was a quote from the thing but i've put it in as a heading psychoanalysis must change to confront the cyborgs to come <laughs> i loved it as a a sentence um but it's that idea that we are changing the the nature of how we experience the world is changed by the tech that we use yes yeah uh, and 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 um look i mean like i said i mean to be honest with you i must say liam you have read my book more closely than i've read it myself <laughs> um and paid more attention than i did when writing it but but about this that that's i mean it's nice also to hear it sort of quoted because i feel like yeah that's not that's not a stupid comment um, no. and yeah the, um my point is that with this one that you know obviously we we we're bored i think of hearing that psychoanalysis is elitist and male dominated like i know that like you know mm. i'm i'm not saying that freud wasn't a misogynist I, you know the the point is that well we're in a particular moment right now with regards to what nick cernicek calls platform capitalism what is the gig economy what we often call the gig economy which means a world and 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 which we sometimes refer to as gamification which means a world where precarious work is rife and gamified and what it means to be a worker and what it means to be a player 
are coming closer together than mm. ever before. Just look at how Deliveroo or Uber functions to, to see a clear a clear function of a gamified, precarious worker. Um, and, you know, yes, I'm saying that psychoanalysis can be critical here because it can help us to understand the problem of desire and, and what's useful, what's fun, what gives us pleasure, you know, is... is, is and, and for me, I mean, the reason why I like the psychoanalysis of Jacques Lacan uh, rather than, say, the original psychoanalysis of Sigmund Freud is because... It was political. And, and Lacan tried to argue that what psychoanalysis does, it allows you to see how your desires are political. So if you feel something, that you want something, that you desire something, there are political reasons why you feel that thing. And you experience it as your own feelings, but it's actually not you that's feeling. You're, you're, you're desiring through and within a, a political structure. And and. This could explain Brexit. It could explain the Trump election, especially yeah. the Trump election, which is the most libidinal election, at least since Obama and maybe ever. Um, you know, where, you know, basically the way in which desire is activated by cultural, corporate, political, social forces is the key to understanding how we live now. And so, yeah, psychoanalysis um, is critical and can be enormously helpful in, in, in helping us to understand how politics affects our feelings and our thoughts. Um, but also, you know, yeah, this isn't the psychoanalysis of old um, where it's about, you did you want to fuck your mum or something? This is a <laughs> psychoanalysis that is interested in saying, okay, how does polit politics make us think and feel? Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and and I guess... The other, By the um, way, I'm back because my son-in-law is <laughs> going to be late, and I was so relieved. <laughs> That's on record. That's a broadcast of thousands. Yeah, I think um, sort of one of the interesting things, and I guess maybe this veers a bit away from the mental health stuff, but maybe it doesn't, is that once you become aware of these principles or these ideas that your thoughts and feelings aren't necessarily yours. They can be the cultures and they sort of express yeah, 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 through yeah. you. And, like once and, that becomes so, in, uh, as an idea, like in you, then suddenly uh, you go, what do you do with that superpower? Like what do you do with that sort of magic source? Do you try and tell everyone in the world like, hey, this is what happens to us as human beings? Or, and I think this is what you've said in, in, in numerous uh, parts of your work, is you have to get involved and start playing with the magic source as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the way you put this question. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, yeah. And this is this is also something about um, about the whole of academia and the whole of studies. Like, there's no fucking use. This is my position there's no fucking use saying to people revealing the truth you know mm. saying, to people, <laughs> saying to people actually you are mm. in the matrix that is nonsense you know that that that's not the right way i i think really what you just said is the, the magic source we have to start controlling people's brains you know because that is how it works like there isn't anything else every piece of media is an ideological 
uh, attempts to reprogram people's desire. And it always has been. And there is only that, you know. And so, I mean, actually, the person that I... I was actually looking quickly for the quote, but I've lost it now. Uh, but I think it's from Chegladov, uh, the situationist, who was a friend of Guy Debord's, as part of situationism in the, in the 60s. And in, it's in an essay, I think, called Formulary for a New Urbanism. And he basically says, we need to carry out a counter-propaganda you know, mm. see that the way that basically everything you see on the BBC, on CNN, on Al Jazeera is essentially propaganda at the highest degree. And instead of uh, saying it's bad that there's propaganda, you need to be carrying out propaganda. And and this is more controversial. Like, I don't think it's like, because I, I guess Steve Bannon was also trying to do this with Breitbart. And, you know, to an extent, you could say on the left, there's things like Jacobin, there's things like... Um, Navarra Media in the UK, which which try to kind of do that, and I, I'm 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 fine with that, and I think that the 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 games are a critical space for this, and that mm. we must not we don't need to just be saying to people, look, your desires aren't your own. We need to be saying, here's a game that you can play and enjoy, and when you come out the other end of this game, you're a socialist. <laughs> yeah. Well, that would be great. <laughs> Although I think that you know the most subversive thing that I do is reach people emotionally where nobody else did, that that is a kind of truth that is very subversive, that and, connection. And do you think it's, do you think it, uh, limited is the wrong word, but do you think it is limited to the fact that it is just you and that other person, you know, in the room discussing things or is it because that's the human connection or can I think it, it's can, both. Can that be bottled up and, and programmed in a way? Like I don't think it can, but I think even if you went door to door, it would make a difference because little things change your life. I remember walking up 14th Street, and 14th Street is a street where there's a lot of desperados putting their used stuff out on the sidewalk to sell. And there was a black woman leaning against one of the buildings and there were a group of cops around her, but they weren't adversarial. I think they were trying to help her. And she was just sitting there and she looked like she was in such distress that I looked at her and I felt so for her and I reached my hands out and I waved at her and she blew me a kiss as mm. I walked by. And there was a moment when we both knew there's a person who feels what you feel. and. I is connected. And I think that those moments of connection and even the larger connections, well, I'm a therapist, um, where people connect with an emotional truth in themselves is totally subversive. It's, Nobody comes yeah. out of therapy right wing, <laughs> at least with me. Well, listen, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really interesting point. I mean, and, and that's, you know, I mean, not not obviously not all therapists, no, well, not all forms of therapy function that way. Some of them, on the contrary, function to return people to work as quickly as possible as the perfect sure. capitalist subject. But 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 the point you're making is, is that absolutely right. That when you go for a process of something, and this is what I was trying to say. I think that you know there is no apolitical. There is no apolitical. Right. When you go through anything, you come out the other end of it different. So mm -hmm. you might as well you might as well embrace that and say, okay, what politics do I want people to come out at the end of this process with? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Pretending that they can 
come out of it neutral because they can't. You can't. Of course not. It's like everything you do. I mean, the psychophysiology that they've done, every experience you have changes your brain. It's all biochemically changed too. There is no escaping that everything influences you on every level. Yeah, and so, sure. yeah. This is this is you so, know. So for me, this is this is why. I mean, since you know, you asked me to come on the podcast to talk about games. This is why it would be so moronic to not think about games properly because they that mm. we can all say that they're the biggest growing industry. There are more young people than ever playing video games. There are. It, it's become bigger than the music, TV, film industry. You know, so so we agree also that when you do something, it affects you. And yes. So it's absolutely insane that some people and lots of people really genuinely think that games are not having a particularly large concrete effect on the world we're living in, the subjects that we are, the the things we want, the things we desire, the politics we have, the friendships we have, the connections we have. Cl- clearly, the most the biggest industry of things is having an enormous enormous effect huge on how people think and feel and that is the whole point to start talking about those things is is just a, at least a good start it is and you know recently i was at a school conference for a student who is uh he's a 12 year old boy who has a lot of difficulties and i said well I got to know him by finding out the games that he's interested in and the programs he's interested in and the videos. They said, why'd you go into his media? And I thought, how else do you get to know somebody? Right, yeah. Especially a child. Yeah. But it was kind of new to them. Well, my daughter is extremely good at video games. um, And... um, She's yeah, five. she's five, and uh, she's uh, yeah. I, I'm trying to, you know, my approach with that is is um, get her socialist games. Exactly, yeah. exactly. She, well, and um, that, yeah, I plan to put her to work as free labor in the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it definitely opens up like a whole other sort of conversation. One, actually, how video games are made—they're made in exactly the same way as every other industry is subjected to. You know, a few people at the top with the money telling mm. everyone else what to do and crushing people's dreams in the process. The other is um, that there are video games there's lots of indie video games that try to do something mm. different and try to make you feel yeah, yeah something yeah. different and, and, and that's a great and, and and on that i must also say that's extremely important and like we also need to think if we're socialists about the processes of these things and the way they connect to um you know global capitalism and supply chains mm. like you know for example there are some big i mean indie gaming I, i'm really i think we should really push indie gaming and force that to be the future because you get some games that are made by major major companies top triple a games they call them um and and these have a strong female lead let's say and maybe even she's a black woman but mm-hmm. every single part of the console uh, and the, and the the, the hardware and software that's been developed has been made by underpaid women in the Philippines. <laughs> so you, you, you're, yeah. you're in a weird situation. Um, yeah. where you're celebrating a game for being, you know, having a strong black female lead, but actually loads of exploited women in the Philippines made this game. 
and I made the things so to to, to revolutionise the games industry. You're not just talking about symbolic representational stuff. You're talking about fundamental change uh, and structural change to the way that those those companies are structured. And indie games, as as um, Liam just pointed out, are, are an answer to that. Indie games on the whole, are less environmentally damaging, less exploitative in terms of global supply chains. And to be honest with you, Grand Theft Auto 7 is boring. It's going to be boring. There's that, well, the prospect of that is shit. Like, there's much more interesting things we can do with this industry, and I think revolutionary and interesting people should be part of it and build new kinds of games, but also new kinds of companies underneath those games and mm. try and make this industry something that, allows us to have pleasure and fun and desire in a way that isn't the way this industry has currently gone. Yeah, that's brilliant. And also they should be organized as co-ops, which would change their structure. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I worked in an indie video game studio for about four or five years in sort of Mm -hmm. different roles, different capacities, and it it was like a microcosm of of capitalism, Mm. you know. It it was uh, not ideal, and I agree that ultimately a sort of foundation for video games or most industries could probably benefit from the sort of co-op thing because at least from the, from that mm. perspective, you start remaking the world from the inside out with sort of founding principles that are just different to yes. pure and accumulation. You, you start also being empowered that you direct things that you are not just an employee, you're everything. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, really well, I probably need to stop yeah. a little bit, but, uh, yeah. but partly because I, I need to go and hang out with my family, but also partly <laughs> because I feel like if we keep, we could, could talk for hours, but actually yes. what we have recorded is quite quite good. It's exciting, yeah. um, yes. And yeah, yeah. Uh, so we, we could always have a second round, like we said. Yes, we do. Yeah. We need to have a second round. This is. Yeah, I, I would. I would go for as a topic instead of video games. I'd go for like, you know, love or on or like sex robots or something like that. Would be a good topic to sort of talk about. Yeah, carry okay. on discussions. That something to do with like love and desire in in contemporary capitalism. Yeah, well, that's very sexy indeed. Yeah, <laughs> but but this is. The, uh, I'm right in thinking that next year you have a book coming out on that. Sort yeah, of on that, on well. that. Right. Yeah, which, which is yeah, it, it's awesome. called it's called Dream Lovers. Uh, it's, it's about gamification of relationships, but friendships, relationships. It's, 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 it's fun stuff in there, like sex bots, smart condoms, uh, yeah. virtual girlfriends, <laughs> that sort of thing, and and sort of my experiences of trying all these things out and stuff. But yeah, it, it's related to what we're saying now about platform capitalism and gamification, but with a slightly different sort of focus, not on games themselves, but on you know, yeah, love technologies. Yeah, it sounds That's awesome. really interesting. We can yeah. record that. Uh, well, whenever, maybe if closer to the, closer to the book launch or whatever. You yeah, want yeah to that'll do, be out in March. So yeah, so, okay, yeah, that'd be cool. But but I, you guys were really fun to talk to, and it was a lovely way of spending my uh, pre-Christmas uh, evening. Actually. Yeah, yeah. And well, it, thank you so much. Thank <laughs> yeah. you so very much. I am really an ignoramus in this field. I only get interested because I have adolescent clients who are into it. So I'm really, really pleased and and moved by what I learned. So thank you. Thanks, yeah. both of you. Yeah, it was a good Christmas present all, yeah, all yes. around. <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. yeah all right. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks very much, Alfie. And we talk soon, Liam. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. 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 Okay, thank you, everybody.
By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader over overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans, but the top 10 or 20 percent of Americans, have our security and our chance for a future become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head and capitalism hits home are definitely complimentary. And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it? Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, harrietfraud.com.